Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. This is Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families with your host, Wayne France. Brought to you by Family Care Center, offering behavioral health services for both children and adults and specializing in services for military families and veterans. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family. Now, here's Dwayne France. Hello, and welcome to Inside the Military Mind. My name is Dwayne France, and each week we'll be talking about mental health and wellness for the military-affiliated population. Coming up in today's guest segment, I'll be having a conversation with Dr. Ann Rush about her organization, Status Code 4, a nonprofit that provides mental health and wellness services to first responders and their families. Later, I'll be sharing the Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week, Mount Carmel Veteran Services. Our show is brought to you by the Family Care Center, the community's leading provider of outpatient behavioral health for service members, veterans, and their families. Those who serve our country deserve the best that our community can offer. When it comes to mental health and wellness, it's important for them to work with someone that they can trust and can understand their unique challenges and needs related to mental health. Whether you're looking for individual counseling, couples counseling, or management and consultation regarding mental health medications, you'll find what you need at the Family Care Center. Take some time to focus on you by going to fcsprings.com and allow our family to care for you and your family. As always, it'd be great to hear your feedback and thoughts about mental health and wellness for the military-affiliated population. Share them with us by dropping an email to militarymind at fccsprings.com. Today's interview segment is with Dr. Ann Rush, the co-founder and development director at Status Code 4. Ann holds a PhD in education specializing in training and performance improvement. She's a retired U.S. Air Force officer and has spent over 30 years performing duties as an adult educator, Air Force operator, and program manager. While in the Air Force, she was on several crisis support teams and provided suicide awareness training. She manages Status Code 4's family support program and is the volunteer coordinator. Let's get into my conversation with Ann and come back afterwards to talk about the Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week. So your organization, Status Code 4, is dedicated to supporting the first responders with mental health and wellness. I'd like to hear about your background, how you got into working with first responders and their mental health. Duane, first, let me just thank you for this opportunity to share our experiences and also our organization, Status Code 4. So a little bit about me. I am retired Air Force. I went in at 17. After 21 years, I was able to retire and then spend another nine more years working in some facet of the Department of Defense. And shortly before uh, I walked away from the Department of Defense, I uh, became a widow. And my husband at that time was a veteran. He was experiencing depression and ended up uh, succumbing to his um, substance use issues and uh, died of alcohol liver disease. And at the moment that he passed away, I realized, you know, I needed to be doing something different with my life. I love serving my country and helping out with uh, the Air Force operations, but I knew that it didn't feed my soul. And so a year later, Dan was brought into my life and he is now a retired paramedic, but he served as a paramedic for about 25 
25 years. And he early on in his career, he was diagnosed with PTSD. And through going back to college and through his counseling, um, both from an education perspective and his own therapy, he um, overcame those things and uh, saw that it, recovery was absolutely possible. And so he, he finished up as with his doctorate in psychology. And by the time he met me, we both had our, our doctorates. And you know he shared with his thoughts that right now, the first responder community, the mental issues, the mental readiness is not being addressed with the first responder community. And suicides, unfortunately, um, are a big concern because more individuals die by their own hands as first responders than they do in any other line of duty, much like the military side. And so he shared that he wanted to open up a practice that focused on first responder mental health. And I said, that's that's great. We also need to include the family members. And so, you know, as we were having our relationship and growing in that, I started learning more about uh, what it's like to be a family member to a first responder. And so we got engaged and then started uh, Status Code 4 in 2017. We got married and then he retired and now we're doing this full time. I think it's it's interesting. You're coming from the military background in which we don't have as stellar of a track record of addressing mental health and wellness as we would like, but more than the first responder community. Yes, right? to, to hear from him to say that there's nothing here that we've been trying a lot of different things. Maybe they haven't worked but so what was it like for you understanding that from the DOD perspective, we're trying to address a number of different mm -hmm. things, maybe not well, but now there's this community is very similar, but aren't receiving any support. Oh, it was eye-opening. I mean, we were fortunate enough to be a part of this one organization it was called Responder Strong, and it was primarily for Colorado and the different agencies throughout the state. And they did a study early on that showed that 95% of the organizations across the state had either 8,000 or less dollars associated to mental health, mental readiness, counseling, all of that for their departments. And if you're out in the rural areas, it's zero. So uh, unfortunately, uh, it was it was way it was wide opening um, to our eyes and also solidified the need for an organization like ours. And again, this idea that even the DOD is spending these millions of dollars, like they they spend they spend a lot of money, and even maybe most recently thinking about increasing embedded behavioral health and really a lot of these programs, some that have been more and less efficient. But they were were such a large organization that you could sort of do that enterprise wide, but first responder agencies are so small and segmented and, and individual, like the, the budgets, I mean, it, it, it's fractured like a diamond, so many different facets mm -hmm. um, that it's really hard to have a national conversation around mental health and wellness for first responders. It has been. It's getting a lot better, though. Uh, we are seeing a lot more leadership buy-in uh, at the national level and at the state state's level. You know, I think that it's just as, as we talk about the similarities of the, of the military and the first responder world, there's that stigma, uh, you know, and there are a lot of leaders out there that still have this idea that if you can't handle the job, meaning that you can't unpack that, that yuck stuff, um, then maybe the first responder field is not the best for you. Where we're coming in as, you know, as human beings, as compassionate human beings, when you're exposed to that kind of tragedy, on so, and sometimes on a very personal level, because you're there, right there hearing the screams of the, the parents when you've got an infant that's um, going downhill. Um, those things kind of stick with you. And we want compassionate first responders. And, and you know, let me take a step back here and define what first responder really means. So these are your dispatchers that are receiving the 911 calls. These are your law enforcement, firefighters, um, emergency medical staff. These are your victim advocates, your coroners. All of those individuals have some role in the really ugly 
um, situations. And so what we try to do is work with them to help them uh, process the stuff that they just can't work through. And so um, we help normalize what they're feeling. Because when we talk to these individuals, it's like, well, you know, if if you were um, affected by that situation, let's go back to the pediatric death. I think all all individuals have some appreciation for how severe that is. Um, Why wouldn't you be upset about that? Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you be bothered by that? That's a natural, normal response. And so once they kind of realize, well, wait a minute, this is a normal thing. Now it's not a deficiency in who I am. It's just the nature of the beast with the career that you've chosen that most of them, not all of them love. It's just the burnouts and the the repetitive exposures and not being able to effectively deal with it or have just the challenges from the departments. And I think this is something that, that uniquely with status code four is is he has the the first responder background without military and you have the military background without experience. And then, so the two of you together, uh, but there is often an overlap mm-hmm. in this community. I, I think I might've mentioned to you, we've known each other for a couple of years, but I was a cop son as much as I was a, a, a veteran son. My father left Vietnam, became a St. Louis city cop in the seventies. We don't know where PTSD from one mm-hmm. ended and the other began. Right. So I grew up as the son of a first responder. There is a lot of overlap in our community here in El Paso County and around a nation between the first responders and the military and veterans. What do you see as some of the similarities between military mental health and first responder mental health? And then maybe what are some of the differences? I think the similarities, um, just to start off with, is the same type of individuals going to the military as as going to the first responder world. Type A, independent, wanting to serve the community. And then you're faced with, holy crap, you know, I've just experienced this and the challenges that I have in life. Oftentimes, I see a lot of individuals that came into the military that were coming into the military to get away from something. Mm-hmm. So they've got pa- they've got baggage with them when they first go into the military, and they think that it's going to be better because it's something new. But oftentimes, it, it exacerbates the situation until um, they're able to to work through that. I was very fortunate and blessed that I had amazing leadership that saw when I was experiencing depression early on in my career that my boss said, why don't you go talk to somebody about this? And I was able to go and work through that. And it didn't impact my career. In fact, I got a commission and I got, you know, some of the highest classifications. Uh, And so I, you know, suicide was very, very prevalent in the Air Force during my career. In fact, when I was teaching Airman Leadership School as an NCO, I helped them develop the the suicide awareness curriculum because we were seeing an awful lot of numbers of suicides. As uh, Cass from Pikes Peak Suicide Prevention Organization identified in one of her films, you know, with each suicide, there's 115 individuals that are somewhat impacted by that. That is very much the same in the first responder world. You have a lot of individuals that go into the first responder fields because not only to serve their community, but usually they come from a past that says, I'm going to make a difference. Because it was chaotic, because it was dangerous. Right. And so when they go into the first responder world, if they haven't processed that stuff that they carried into the field, well, now it just gets exacerbated by what they're exposed to. And so oftentimes when we see guys coming forward to us, we're having to work on all that underlying stuff that that is the root cause for why they think the way they do, why they pack the the ugly stuff away the way they do. Uh, And we help them offload that and then also give them uh, skills 
that work for them because everybody's unique and different, just like in the military. And so it is truly the resiliency skills that a lot of these folks are longing for. And we have um, federal agencies, you know, on the military installations that perform first responder duties that um, are associated with both the military and the civilian side where they're just longing for, hey, you know what, how do I effectively deal with this long term? You know, because therapy should only be something that that helps them get through that stuff, but also prepare them for the life's challenges going forward there. And uh, so those are the similarities there. I think the differences, though, with the first responder world is that they fight the wars at home. You know, it isn't that they go and get deployed and deal with the ugly stuff and then come back home. It is they're doing it every day. Uh, every day. They're having sometimes to drive by the scenes that they can't forget that are sitting in there and running through their their minds. And so they're re-triggered every time they go into work. And so when they're triggered, they're carrying all those ugly feelings with them. And now they're like, okay, and I'm getting ready to go into work and I'm still processing this other stuff. And so now I've got to put my game face on and go through that next shift because it's, you know, it's call after call after call that they have no idea what they're going to get. Some are very um, simple ones and other ones are ones where they carry with them for years. No, I appreciate that. And in, in two things that you just said that I remember having a conversation with my father again, both a combat veteran in Vietnam and, and police officer and largely security throughout his, his working career, was he said, when I was in Vietnam, the enemy ex- acted the way I expected them to act. But now I came home and I saw people who were my fellow mm-hmm. citizens acting like the enemy. And he was like, that's what really threw me. And the other piece was, was he came out here and moved with us. And he was like, I had so many bad memories in St. Louis. And we would drive around. And he was like, yeah, I chased somebody through that cemetery over there. And I responded to a robbery over here. And exactly what you said is it's almost as if, and not to be dramatic, about it, but it's almost as if driving through the battle zone in the battle space every day and reminded of every single thing that happened. Mm-hmm. Right, right. The other thing too with the similarities um, from the family side is, you know, oftentimes when the guys are deployed and then they come back home, there's that transition time of, you know, the families were used to not having them around. And now they're excited that they're home, but there's a little bit of a, okay, how do we reintegrate you back into this family core and we become one family unit again? And there's that struggle there. In the first responder world, um, when the guys come off their their call, it's not like they have a transition uh, in theater to decompress. They do it at home. And so when, you know, let's talk a, a firefighter that may have a 48 hour, 96 hour time, that's four days away. So by the time that individual comes home, the family is ready to unpack all the stuff that they went through because things only happen when they're on duty, of course, at home. And the responder's like, you know what? I just need to, pro- I need to just take a nap and, or I'm not ready to make those decisions you're asking me for. I don't really care well, where we go to eat. Um, you decide. And so in a way, this wedge happens in the family units that they didn't plan for. And oftentimes they take it very personal. And so uh, just like with military coming home and there's all this fighting and everything, the family members take it personal um, because the military members still trying to process whatever they exposed to and then become, you know, get normalized being at home. And so there are those similar struggles there. Unfortunately, on the first responder family side, it's every it could be possibly right. every shift and to the point where the whole family is resentful of that individual going to work because oftentimes if there's little mini World War threes at home, the responder isn't won't going to want to come home all the time. And so they can tend to get drawn into the extra department, shifts. And- extra shifts. Mm-hmm. They, they start bonding more with the, the responders that get it and their family is left over here. So how do you enhance 
the family life so that the responder and the family start becoming one again. Oftentimes it's just through education. Oftentimes it's it's telling the families that this isn't you. The wedge that you're experiencing isn't because of a loss of love. It's that you guys have grown apart and not know how to get back together. And so when we start educating both the responders and the family members on the, the physiological effects of what PTSD does or depression does to that, and then how do you recover? Because recovery is absolutely possible. Then that changes the whole dynamics. And our whole focus is trying to have that responder and whoever they define as their support go on that recovery journey together. And I think that's very similar to the military side too. What we also like to do, and I'm sure you're you're aware of this as well, I've been seeing it more in the military side, is we don't call PTSD PTSD, we call it PTSI because we view post-traumatic stress as an injury to the psyche, not a disability. Even though the, the DSM-5 calls it that as a diagnostic um, term, it, we see it's you know, words matter with mental health mm -hmm. and resiliency and everything. And so when we say you've got an injury to the psyche, it's recoverable. Unfortunately, you just got to do the hard work because it's not comfortable to, to face those demons and go through that stuff. But when you can get through that storm, the post-traumatic growth that comes from that, or even the growth from depression makes you such a much a stronger and resilient individual. And that's where I think in, in, you know, to those similarities is that they're inherently dangerous and they do, you know, have the same people, as you said, come into it, but the same techniques can work, right? You know, so EMDR for combat trauma mm -hmm. versus first responder traumatic exposure, and the same tools can be the same. Um, I'm curious to hear though, about that overlap in which you have, as you said, people may enter the first responder community running from something, right? So like my father, other veterans, I think, you know, three or four of my troops are, are either firefighters or law enforcement. And so service members who have their own unresolved trauma that gravitate towards the first responder community because of its familiarity and then add to that complexity. Right, exactly. So right now we're seeing anywhere um, just in the state of Colorado, 30 to 40 percent of the new recruits into the first responder field have some um, veteran background. In our area, I would probably say it's closer to 50 or 60 percent, especially down in the fountain security uh, area of our county. Oftentimes we see where the military members, when they process out of their units into the civilian world, they tend to not talk about what they're experiencing from a mental um, wellness perspective. So oftentimes they may leave the military and have PTSD, but they're not ready to talk about it. They're not ready to face those demons. And so they think, well, I'm going to go into the first responder field because it's a service oriented thing. There's that brotherhood, there's sisterhood, um, camaraderie that they're longing for. And they join up and then they realize when they hit the streets, oh, wow, I'm not getting any better. In fact, I'm getting worse. And so what we see uh, sometimes in our practice is individuals coming in at a complex PTSD state. And so we have to not only unpack what they've experienced in the, PT in the first responder world, but also in the military world. EMDR works for that. And actually, we're seeing that those that um, have a difficult time even going through that EMDR process where neurofeedback might be something that is more applicable to that or more appropriate um, technique for that. And so we've been having a lot of good success. We just received a, a grant from Colorado Springs Health Foundation earlier this year that afforded us the opportunity to upgrade our entire neurofeedback apparatus and software application. And it's just incredible how we're able to, you know, see what the brain is doing and then focus on the areas that they need the training to help them resolve. But from the complex PTSD perspective, it's still recoverable. 
it's just, it's tough. It is. And, and, and I appreciate sort of that neurological focus. And, and perhaps if you can explain a little bit more on neurofeedback, I don't think that we've talked about it on the show, but going back to what you were talking about, post-traumatic stress injury, I mean, this is a neurological injury. Mm -hmm. Like the brain structures have been changed. Um, our brains are adapting the way the brains are supposed to adapt, but adapts in sort of a, a convoluted way. And neurofeedback is a way to be able to do that. So if you could explain a little bit more about neurofeedback. Sure. Well, first off, I'm not a psychologist, so you know I don't have the, the scientific expertise on that. Um, so take it with a grain of salt. But I think it's one of those, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, as a nonprofit, we don't charge for any of our, our therapy or anything like that. So we're fortunate and blessed that our donations allow us to do what we do. But if individuals are seeking outside treatment, it can be very pricey. And that's why oftentimes guys forego that particular treatment. But what happens with that is first and foremost, we do what we uh, call a kind of a, a brain scan, but you're looking at the passive waves of the brain. And oftentimes in regions, especially if there's been a, a traumatic brain injury or a concussion, uh, or perhaps they're experiencing ADHD or ADDD, there may be segments in the brain that may be sleeping, what we call sleeping. It just means that the, the brain activity isn't um, that uh, working optimally, or it could be overworking. We've found where the areas of the brain where they're just going, 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 Emotional going. centers yes. of the brain, likely, yeah. And they can't turn it off. Mm -hmm. And so they get very anxious and that kind of thing. And so what the QEG does is it allows us to look at the brain passively for about uh, 20 minutes and we're able to identify the key areas on the brain that we can do what we call neurofeedback training. And all that does is you, the individuals sit in there and they, they watch this game and they're able to just monitor the game. And based off of their brain activity, it will make the game go more efficiently or not. So if you're in a car and it's going down the road, if the car goes really fast, your brain is working um, optimally. If it's slowing down, it, you know, because again, we're having the, the nodes um, around that area of the brain, it means that the brain isn't acting and performing. And so by doing that training, you're actually working out the brain. And so the first few sessions, gosh, guys look completely like they've had a, a, a they've run a marathon. They're mm -hmm. so wore out yeah. because it is very taxing. But over time, as their brain becomes more efficient and working more optimally, it is not so taxing on them. Uh, and then they're able to perform better. They're able to actually read a couple of pages and retain the information where before it's like they were reading the same paragraph over and over again. They couldn't focus on that. And here they're trying to do their job well, and then they're faced with these kind of challenges. So if anything, what I really love about neurofeedback is they can actually see for themselves. It isn't just a, a feeling. It is empirical evidence in front of them that can show that their brain is improving. And then that just gives them the, the dopamine release, whatever you want to call it, to continue the efforts. And so that's that's a beautiful thing yeah. when people can feel better and actually see that they're better. You know, I appreciate that. And I know that in there's a number of different types of neurofeedback, but it's one of these things where we have the technology, mm -hmm. both the clinical technology and techniques like EMDR, mm -hmm. prolonged exposure, if we're dealing with traumatic response, um, but also there's a number of different types of technologies know, that, we, that we know works. In the military and veteran community, we're recognizing that we need to look beyond just the individual themselves to their support 
support systems. And you referred from the first responder side about the family members. Um, but this is also critical when it comes to first responder families. Often the spouses and children of the first responders are experiencing stressors along with the responder themselves. And so I'm curious about that aspect of the family dynamic, not just, as you said, when you said we're team first responders, we have to deal and support the families as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, let me uh, let me just say that with any mental illness, usually an individual does not, though they may feel like they're the only one suffering. Normally, if there are individuals around them that are close to them, they're also going through that pain as well. It's just manifested differently. And so when an, when an individual is struggling, let's say they've had a horrific call and then they come home, you know, one of the, the natural responses, especially for men, um, is anger because culturally we're not allowed to cry, right? As men, uh, might not. And for women that are in the military, we weren't Same. allowed to cry yep. either. Mm-hmm. Same thing with females in the first responder world. If, if I show any form of femininity, then I am subpar to, um, being a good responder or, or a good, um, military member. So we suppress those kind of things. And then it comes out as anger. And oftentimes, unfortunately, those that we care about the most feel that wrath the worst. Because now we can let down our guard and we can just uh, expand on that. So that's one element that the family is affected by that. And then the walking on eggshells. And if there's any type of substance or an addicted behavior to help self-medicate where they are, that can bring on a whole another group of challenges for the family members. And so let me just uh, take a step back and talk about that that support. So the, the support that we focus on from the first responder world is very similar to the military side. We look at as on your day-to-day um, working activities in the work environment, what are your peers seeing? You know, your peers are going to pick up changes in behaviors um, from a professional side. And, um, you know, if somebody's talking all the time and really happy and everything, and all of a sudden their, their demeanor changes, are you going to just allow that? Or are you going to reach out to them and check in with them and make sure that they're doing okay? So we, with support, we want to focus on that 360 type thing. We take a systems approach where we look at the leadership, how they're taking care of their guys, the decisions that they make, um, dealing with folks that have had a bad call. Are they pulling them off the front line is, you know, when they know that they just went on a horrific call, if they have the opportunity to do those kind of things, then, um, you know, again, from the peer, we have um, peer support, certified peer support programs so that there are individuals that get it, they can go and talk to that have that same degree of confidentiality as a counselor has or a chaplain has. And then we have the support from the family members and those they designate as their um, loved ones whether that that's the roommates, parents, siblings, family, you know, spouses or whatever. And so all of those, we focus on trying to educate all of them on the signs and symptoms, uh, you know, on the right questions to ask, getting them past the uncomfortable question of, are you thinking about killing yourself and how important that question is? And I want to come back to that question. So ask me about that um, in a minute here. And also recognizing the signs and symptoms. Are they experiencing burnout? Are they experiencing PTSD? Are they experiencing depression? How they look very similar, but there's subtle differences uh, with each one of them. So we spend a lot of time focusing on getting familiar with the signs, getting to, to know people, communicating effectively, and then uh, coming at it from a very genuine perspective and also listening. Being silent and just being with someone is very powerful for that individual and just being there for them. And then also asking them, what is it that you need from me? 
you know, I see that you're struggling. Is there anything that I can do to help you? Sometimes they say, yes, could you do this? Sometimes and oftentimes um, they don't know. Mm. And they're like, okay, that's fine. Let me know what you want to do. I'm going to go take care of myself, but know that I love you and I need to, you know, and I'll, and come back to me when you're ready to talk to me, you know, and, and, you know, the worst part of, of all of that support system tends to be the spouses mm -hmm. with that nurturing behavior. They want their struggling loved one to be well. And so letting them understand that it is okay for them to go and be that by themselves. That's part of the normal processing thing. In fact, when, when someone's experiencing PTSD, they're at a state where they're in constant fear, paranoia. And unfortunately, our body's natural response is to avoid everybody mm -hmm. and to isolate. And that's just a normal part of that recognition. What you as a loved one can do is acknowledge that that's a healthy response for a short period of time and helping them normalize that instead of picking on them. You never talk to me, you, mm. you know, which is very natural. You, right. you haven't seen them for a while. Why don't you want to make a decision? Oh, you don't, you know, you don't, you don't it care. doesn't matter yeah. to you anymore when it's absolutely not. Because at the core of each individual that is experiencing these things is shame is guilt, is fear. And the last thing a type A personality wants to allow themselves to see is that they're not okay. Mm -hmm. And that puts them in a very vulnerable space. So the other part of our training is to say, you can only allow someone to be as vulnerable to that person as they are to themselves. So I could only expect another person to open up and talk to me at the same degree that I'm ready to open up and talk to them. So you have to be vulnerable yourself in order to expect someone else to be vulnerable to you. And that's tough oftentimes, but there's also a high degree of trust mm -hmm. and a high degree of respect. And so those are the kind of things that we try to reinforce in our training. And I think that resonates on the military side and on the, um, the first responder side, because I can remember in the military... The supervisors that I remember and carried with me through my career were the ones who truly cared about me. Right. They put their, their troops needs first instead of looking at their career. But even that first responder family member, you, there's mm -hmm. that trust, there's that legitimacy. Mm -hmm. There's a source of pride and honor to know that I am a family member of a first responder in the same that like I'm part of a, a, a unique and, and culturally different club, right? And so some military or excuse me, first responder family members can internalize some of those things as we don't talk about these things because that's not, and, and so they can really carry some of that offloaded stigma which can keep them from being that that vulnerable to their their spouse or partner. Well, I think it comes down to um, just being uncomfortable with being vulnerable. I think it's it's we unfortunately we share our innermost um, concerns. It's an uncomfortable place to be because if I'm uncomfortable with how I'm feeling and you know how I'm feeling, now I'm worried how you're going to be thinking about me. And so it's it's a very it's an uncomfortable feeling for both sides. There we. You know, talking about that that family unit, that's why that recovery journey has to be a family unit type thing, because that that post-traumatic stress growth or the depression growth should not just be for that individual. It, mm -hmm. it should be for the family unit as well, because if the more that you can integrate them into the recovery path, the stronger the whole family unit will be, because you're going to learn how to communicate more effectively. You're going to pick up on the behaviors. You're going to be able to realize that you, you've struggled together and that's what makes you stronger. And so um, it can be a very powerful thing. Sure. Is it going to be, you know, 
roses every step of the way? Absolutely not. How you frame it in your mind makes all the difference. Do you call it growing pains or do you call it conflict? Mm -hmm. And the more conflict, then uh, the more likelihood that, and again, the divorce rate and, and, and sort of disrupted relationships, again, both military and the first responder community, um, you know, career police officers on their third or fourth marriage or something on uh, like this. I mean, just like same with career military members, and that just makes it that much harder. Um, you you have uh, talked about suicide a couple of times so far in, in uh, talking about coming back to asking that question. This is one of the things you and I have worked together on for the last couple of years is specifically addressing suicide for me with the military and veteran population, for you with the first responder population. That is an often an unknown impact of services we were talking about at the beginning of being a first responder. So with suicide prevention, um, what we we're, we're covering all different um, levels to that, the, the prevention, the handling the individual who has is actively um, having suicidal ideations, and then the postvention side of it as well. That's why I love being a part of the El Paso, the the collaboration for suicide prevention in El Paso County, because I'm able to focus on the the postvention side there, which is something that is definitely not talked about enough in the community. So, but on the prevention side, we've talked a lot about that: the education, knowing the signs and symptoms, learning about how to deal with that that individual who is experiencing suicide, and hopefully catching individuals that are struggling, whether it be from a, a mental illness or a um, substance use issue earlier before it gets to the point where they've lost everything and suicide is the best option for that individual at that time. So now our organization does not deal with the the rehab side or the substance use side because there's already a lot of organizations out there, but we kind of um, partner up with them and focus on the, the therapy the root cause of what's causing the addictive behaviors while they're addressing dealing with changing those addictive behaviors. Um, with the suicidal ideations, I mean, that's that's one of those things where helping them, talking them off of that proverbial ledge, if you want to call it that, and then helping build in time from the time that they're having those thoughts to getting the right treatment. Because time, I mean, that's that's the best remedy for that and then helping them work through that. Um, so, and then the postvention is how do you deal with the 115 individuals that are affected by each um, suicide and getting them to a good place? Because oftentimes those individuals carry this huge amount of guilt. Mm-hmm. And I, one of the worst things that I hate teaching are the, the red flags with someone who has suicidal ideations because I can see it in their face. Once I start talking about the flags, they had an individual that they knew had completed and then they see, oh, that was a sign. Mm -hmm. You know, they start thinking about maybe I could have made a difference. And unfortunately we can't go back. And so, you know, from the postvention side, you look at that guilt is, is absolutely normal. It's there, but an individual that wants to take their life, unfortunately it's, it's, it's their choice. And so we can try to do as much as possible with that individual, but ultimately it comes down to where they are and and what they want to do. And that's a tough place to be because you know that they're not thinking rationally at that point. Um, and, and, and also understanding that they're not selfish. They're just self-focused and all of the individuals standing there saying, don't do it, don't do it are not as important to what they're struggling with right there. And that's a tough nut to, to swallow. So, um, so those are the kind of things from the postvention side that we deal with. I, I appreciate that you identify that. And, and, and yes, in the work that I've done as far as postvention separate than intervention, but a lot of times the mistake is made that when there is a suicide loss that 
people will come in and teach in, teach intervention skills and all you're teaching them is is this is what you did wrong and, mm -hmm. and that's not the right time for that that's and so right. i really value that that you identify that it can be uncomfortable there's a time to be able to say we need to overcome this grief um, and then later on we'll talk about intervention but i can't teach intervention skills to somebody that just just did that so i really value that i think that that specifically suicide and unfortunately i don't have the numbers here in front of me but I've looked in the past and nationwide, the cumulative year over year for like law enforcement, first uh, uh, police officers is comparable to like the numbers in the army or the Navy. It's like an entire another service. Same mm -hmm. thing with the fire department is like nationwide deaths by suicide are comparable to the number of service members that we're losing in each of the subservices. And I think people don't realize that it's that widespread within the first responder corps. Right. And, and unfortunately, I didn't come prepared with the national numbers for you. I can, I can share, I can get those for you. Uh, but I can tell you within the state of Colorado, on average, we lose about three first responders per month um, to, to suicide. We're looking at um, from 2004 to 2020 in Colorado, there was about 345 uh, first responder suicides. And in El Paso County, our own County, we had, um, the largest number of suicides and 57% of those were vets that had taken their life there. And just to kind of put that into perspective, Colorado for first responder deaths was number five in the nation. So in our own backyard, uh, we're in one of the, the counties that sees the most here. Now, unfortunately, the other counties in Colorado are, are starting to um, up the numbers. So we're really trying to get in front of that. And I think that that's it's unfortunate that it takes suicides to pique the interest of leadership to say this is a real problem. There is a lot of struggling out there with with guys taking their own lives um, and family members. Right. And there's that there's that hidden piece. But then also going back to what you were talking about is people that are exposed to suicide. Again, I know you and I have talked about this before, but a colleague says that suicide is both common and rare, rare in that we can go years without experiencing a, a personal loss by suicide. But it's common than everyone's. But especially for first responders fire department, paramedics, people that, you know, dispatchers, even police officers, they're responding to multiple, they're exposed to multiple suicides monthly, if not weekly. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, it, it is bad. And just for example, um, we had a, we were very fortunate and blessed to have a grant, uh, come down this summer that allowed us to teach this one class. The acronym is assist. I think it stands for advanced suicide intervention skills training that the Pikes Peak suicide prevention organization falls in there. The majority of the students, um, that we set up the classes for were dispatchers. God bless them. They do the best that they can do. And, and we're working with the, the training organizations to beef up the mental health training, um, for all of the dispatchers there. So there is, there's, a challenge there for our nation as a whole of how do you deal effectively um, with mental health patients. Now, we are seeing a change in there. We're starting to see where your law enforcement officers are going out with a clinician for these calls. We've seen some units set up specifically for that. Um, but, you know, it's just it's one of those things where we are changing um, we just need the culture to change. We need the stigma to be reduced on that. We need to let people know that if you're struggling with things, that you are not alone and that the earlier that you seek help, the more likely you're going to recover.
Mm-hmm. Um, but don't don't get to the edge of that cliff. And I I, I also, as a, a former assist instructor, um, you had mentioned that asking the question right specifically, and wanted to come back to that. And that's one of the programs, the gatekeeper training, um, that we have a natural um, uh, inclination to avoid those kind of questions. Um, but that's one thing that assist training, other gatekeeper trainings help us do is to get over that natural aversion and asking the direct question. Right. Right. And, uh, the reason I wanted you to bring that up in here so I wouldn't, um, forget about that thought is, you know, in the first responder world, they're taught very well how to ask someone if they're thinking about killing themselves, because again, they're going on all these calls that have individuals that have mental illnesses and stuff. Uh, so with that, they learn how to play the game. And unfortunately you can ask them if they're thinking about killing themselves now and they can go with a straight face and say no, and then end up taking their life the next day or that evening or whatever. And that's a tough one for guys to, to understand and deal with. Uh, but that's very real too, is that they know how to play. They know how to answer the questions. They know how to get out of that, that, um, 72 hour hold. And unfortunately that that can work to, you know, to their detriment. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting. I, I don't know that I had considered that. I can see that now that that would be the case that they, they know how to answer the questions that they know how to ask. I've often described it as, as veterans, especially current era veterans, we're, we're tested six ways to Sundays. We know how to answer those post-deployment questions to mm-hmm. not get that purple folder or not be sent to the other side of the room, or, you know, you better not answer that because you're not going to be able to go on leave. So we're test sophisticated enough to know how to answer those those questions to sort of keep that on the underneath. I hadn't considered that that was possibly a risk factor for first responders that are taught to ask those questions. Mm-hmm. Yes. The other, the other issue is the access to care. So first responders drop their uh, patients off at all the behavioral health centers. Hmm. So guess what they don't want to do? They don't want to be seen going in that door. You know, I often said that, you know, it would be, I drive a Jeep. It'd be more appropriate if my Jeep were outside of a strip club or a bar than the behavioral health clinic, right? Mm -hmm. You know, even though those two places aren't the best for me in, in the, but, but there is that, I don't want to be seen seeking care. Right. And actually I can see that being similar to the military side. We did a, a study with some of the air force cadets and, um, they all had no problem with people um, coming forward and asking for help and everything. And then when we asked the question, would you have a problem with someone seeing you walk into the behavioral health clinic on base? And every one of them, the majority of them said, yes, I would have a problem with that. So unfortunately we try to push people to go seeking help. But when we have these buildings in these prominent locations that are for behavioral health, oftentimes individuals will avoid that like the plague, because if their buddy sees it, by the time I get back to the dorm, everybody knows about it. It. And the same thing happens in the first responder world. If I were to go to the emergency room um, because I, you know, had an overdose or I did something um, that would highlight where I'm at, it would be like identified like all the way through the yeah. hospital, like wildfires. And it isn't because they're, they're making fun of it. But it, again, if, if the core, if the core feeling is shame, the last thing you want is for someone to know that you carry that. And so maybe we need to start looking at how do we get access to care that doesn't say, Hey, you're coming to a behavioral health facility. Um, come see me. Or maybe it's like with, um, one of the, uh, solutions that the Academy had come up with is make it a part of their normal in processing or out processing where it is 
just part of the system mm -hmm. that they have to go and see that whether they want to or not. Same thing in the first responder world. When there's a critical incident there, everybody goes talks goes and talks to the doc, yeah. not only the people who need it. Because if everybody's in the pool and they're wet, then nobody is standing out. Exactly. Yeah. The other thing, too, um, is we're starting to do annual assessments. So we've been call, called into departments because we don't do fit for duty assessments. There's no fear of them losing their badge where they're gone or whatever, um, which is a huge reason why people don't come forward to the professional um, counselors or the administrative counselors. Uh, but anyway, we sit down with each person of the department, 15 minutes, just do kind of a check-in where you're at, that kind of thing. And that way it gives them the opportunity to ask for a follow-on appointment. Um, and nobody knows what's, what's being discussed there. So, so those are some of the techniques that we can apply in both environments that can try to root out some of these things. Cause these guys, if they're afraid of their, their career is going to go nowhere, if they go ask for help, that's, what's keeping people behind it. I've even had, I've even had folks where they say, well, their, their ability to fly is going to go if they come forward. I said, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in fact, if you self-identify, then you're taking care of your business. But when you now all of a sudden are, are confronted with that, with your commander having to make the decision, it's too late in your career. Um, so we try to get out in front of that. And that's why training at the leadership is so important. Buy-in of the leadership, having leadership talk about their struggles. I can't tell you how powerful it is having someone that is respected and a recognized leader in your organization say, you know, I struggle with alcohol. Um, I put my career and my personal needs in front of my family's needs. And that's where I'm, I'm, I'm at. And I'm telling you guys don't go down that path. It takes a lot of guts to do that, but you are going to not only gain the respect of the guys that are underneath of you, but you're telling them, take care of yourself, understand that it's okay to come forward and ask for help. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I've always valued the work that you do. So if somebody's a first responder or a family member, what can they expect if they reach out to status code for? What are some of the things that you're doing to address sort of you've talked about some of the, the things, but but if people want to reach out, find out more, how can they do that? Sure. So first and foremost, um, we we try to, to do all of the, the 360 approach like I was talking about there. So we provide counseling, education, and informative resources. So what that looks like is we don't charge for our training. In fact, we're sitting at almost $450,000 worth of free counseling um, since we opened our doors in um, 2017. And that can go to the first responder uh, or to the family member. We also do um, relationship skill building there. And then um, we'll even do some financial counseling if financial struggles are the reason there. And in fact, I just learned as I was putting together a, a training thing there that one of the top reasons for suicide is finances. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we, it's, it, you talk about everything that's happened with COVID and going down to a single family and all of those kind of things. Our financial uh, training has been like one of the number one requests. Uh, we also do mental wellness and resiliency training. We do certified peer support training. Uh, we develop a lot of informative resources, self-assessment questionnaires for things like burnout, compassion fatigue, vicarious trauma, uh, suicide awareness, PTSD. And then we, we have a documentary series. It's on our website. It's been 
been sent out to about 750,000 individuals across the world, um, is used in, in departments across the world uh, on PTSD, uh, suicide awareness, um, alcohol or substance use disorder. We even have a kid's film on first responders there. And these are first-person testimonies. Even the kids are first-person where they're talking about what they love about their parents being a first responder and the things that, that stay with them and their concerns and that kind of thing. And then um, we've got an adult loved one book now that we just put out that, that shares what it's like as a first responder, what it's like to be a family unit, and then how to create that bad call plan uh, before they have that. Um, so that way they can kind of work out that things all with emphasis on establishing good communication and, and listening skills. And um and then we just kind of go with the need there. We Sometimes we respond to critical incidences. So let's say um, an area has a horrific call. And so we bring it all the individuals in for that time and help them process the best way that they can. Um, because oftentimes individuals, when they're traumatized, they don't remember everything. So they think they may have thought that they messed up when in fact, oftentimes these discussions say, no, you did the best you could. And um, it was out of your hands. And we've seen where that that thought can keep them experiencing what they're they're experiencing until they're able to process it and get through it. Absolutely. So if people wanted to find out more, get in contact with you or Status Code 4, how can they do that? Sure. They can they can uh, reach out to our website. It's uh, sc4i.org. So that's S as in Sam, C as in Charlie, the number four, letter I as in India.org. Uh, they can also call us at any time, 719-822-3387. Um, on our site and uh, they can reach us through our website as well. Absolutely. Well, thank you for coming on the show today. Yeah. Thank you, Duane. I really appreciate it. I hope that you appreciated my conversation with Ann. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you want to drop us an email at militarymindedfccsprings.com. Next, I'd like to introduce this week's Homefront Military Network Partner of the Week, Mount Carmel Veteran Services. Mount Carmel Veteran Service Center provides integrative services and support to military service members, veterans, and their families. The three core services offered include transition and employment assistance, behavioral health and wellness support, and veteran and family resources, non-clinical crisis case management. Mount Carmel also offers support through connections to community resources, monthly food distributions to those in need, and a safe event space. Mount Carmel began as a dream of Mr. Jay Chimino and was born out of his strong desire to support the veteran community in meaningful ways. Jay Chimino recruited retired Army Colonel Bob McLaughlin to serve as Mount Carmel's executive director in 2016. Bob McLaughlin's military experience includes his service as Fort Carson's garrison commander and chief of staff for the U.S. forces in Afghanistan. His desire was to use his 29 years of military experience to build a one-stop shop in Colorado Springs for transitioning military and veterans in need. One service Mount Carmel provides is transition and employment assistance. The transition and employment team directly assists transitioning service members, veterans of all eras, and their family members in gaining meaningful employment, emphasizing support for military spouses. They provide one-on-one -on -one peer navigator counseling, resume workshops, interview training, transition classes, networking events, and extensive outreach activities to include all of the area's key military installations. The team closely collaborates with local employers, government agencies, and community partners to ensure client success. Mount Carmel also offers behavioral health and wellness services to include individual group and couples therapy, no-cost therapeutic retreats, and non-traditional therapies, including trauma-focused yoga, art, music, and tai chi classes, and more. 
Services are confidential and open to all veterans regardless of discharge status. They support treatment services including depression, anxiety, trauma or relationship struggles, PTSD, and life transitions. Clients do not need a referral and do not need to have insurance. Through partnerships with local universities, Mount Carmel offers a range of counseling services for individuals, couples, families, and children. Treatment is provided by licensed professionals, postgraduate pre-licensure therapists, and graduate interns supervised by an on-site supervisor who is a licensed professional counselor. All clinicians are uniquely trained and experienced in providing military-specific services. Graduate interns are chosen from the top accredited universities along the front range, have completed advanced coursework in mental health services, and provide confidential, trusted, and supervised care. Many providers have either served or are military-connected. Veteran and Family Resources provides non-clinical case management to assess and address veteran and family well-being in the areas of physiological needs, justice-involved issues, safety and esteem through integrated services with behavioral health and community resources. The team offers a hand up to members of the military community experiencing life challenges involving counseling, social services such as housing, utilities, financial, and food assistance. Working with national community partners, the goal is to stabilize lives while providing resources to clients for well and career services. Mount Carmel also provides a safe, multifunctional space to support groups and their partners. They collaborate with dozens of community partners to support veterans in the Pikes Peak region. Mount Carmel recently received results from an independent study done by the National Institute for Social Impact, which reveals that for every dollar the nonprofit invests in its programs, $2 of services are returned to the community. The metric is called social return on investment and is the measure of the value of efforts of an organization to alleviate a social, environmental, or community issue. This social return to the community has resulted in significant increases in veteran job placements and reduced unemployment and employment turnover. Mount Carmel has also provided an increase in resources, support services, and significantly expanded access to programs. Our community is working together to transform hope into action, supporting service members who are serving or have served our nation bravely and deserve the best service and support available. Since Mount Carmel opened its door in 2016, they have supported over 60,000 client visits. The Transition and Employment team has placed nearly 3,000 veterans and family members into employment. Veteran and Family Resources have provided food for over 8,000 families, and the Behavioral Health and Wellness Department has provided counseling service to over 2,000 clients. Mount Carmel is pleased to be further expanding service in 2021 by establishing satellite offices in Trinidad, Fountain, and Pueblo through continued collaboration with its numerous partners. Mount Carmel recently celebrated five years of positive impact in the community. This year, they're on track to serve more veterans than ever before, continuing a tradition of supporting those who have served. So I appreciate being able to bring you the Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week. If you want to find out more about the Homefront Military Network, you can find them online at homefrontmilitarynetwork.org. If you want to find out more about the Family Care Center, you can find them at fcsprings.com. The Family Care Center is the Pikes Peak region's leading provider of comprehensive behavioral health for service members, veterans, and their families. They prioritize you and your family with a range of outpatient mental health services, including individual, couples, group, and family therapy, as well as medication management. Heighten your emotional wellness and receive the professional care that you need from the caring and highly skilled team at the Family Care Center. 
So thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. It'd be great to hear your feedback. Like to answer any questions you might have or know what you'd like to hear about. What topics about military and veteran mental health are you interested in? Send me an email at militarymind at FCCSprings.com and there's a chance that we'll discuss it on an upcoming show. I'd also like to remind you that the information provided on the show is for educational purposes only. While I am a licensed mental health professional, I'm not your licensed mental health professional. If what we discuss in this episode brings up any concerns for you, it's highly recommended that you consult with a clinical mental health counselor. Stay tuned for another great show next week. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever. You've been listening to Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families. Sponsored by Family Care Center, Behavioral Health Services. Our family caring for your family. FCSprings.com. Tune in every Saturday at 11 a.m. for Inside the Military Mind on KPPF and listen to the companion podcast on Podbean. Family Care Center is a comprehensive outpatient behavioral health clinic providing critical mental health support to service members, veterans, family members, and our local community. Family Care Center focuses on the mental health and wellness of those who have served our country's military by providing best in-class evidence-based therapy, medication management, and transcranial magnetic stimulation. Family Care Center's clinical staff is dedicated to meeting every client's outpatient behavioral health care needs. This is Dr. Chuck Weber inviting you to learn Learn more at fcsprings.com. Family Care Center, our family, caring for your family. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.